welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is film and television composer Ron Jones. First of all, fandom seems to be dying. Yeah, there are fewer fans than ever before. Everyone thought that streaming would be a replacement for retail sales and would keep the whole fandom thing going. But streaming is starting to become more like radio, more like background music. It's actually turned music into sort of like water coming out of a tap. The big problem is that when that happens, there are fewer fans that are generated because people aren't concentrating and enjoying as much when they listen. They're just consuming. And there's no wonder why. Western streaming services are geared more for consumption and not for fandom. Songs don't fuel artists or fans. They just become background. But that doesn't mean that fandom is dead completely. We still have Bandcamp and Twitch and TikTok and others that really try to take fandom to the next level. Problem is, it's not in the mainstream services. Well, at least the Western mainstream services. The Chinese and Korean services are actually really good with dealing with fans. About two-thirds of their revenue comes from items other than music, like tickets and fan clubs and merch. So when we look at that and we find that the Eastern services are finding a way to perpetuate being a fan and the Western services are not, you have to wonder, are the Western streaming services actually going to look at this and learn something and adopt that approach as well? If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. Now, the Red Hot Chili Peppers have a brand new album out, and it's the first one in a really long time. It's called Unlimited Love. That is not a super big deal in itself, but this could be. Flea, the bass player for the Peppers, tweeted that they used no compressors or limiters or computers on this new album, just directly to tape and directly off tape. They said they were making it for audiophiles. So why is that a big deal? Well, if you've ever been to a hi-fi show, or if you've ever been to any kind of audio trade show, AES is another example, and you listen to the speaker demos, the speaker demos always use the records that have the largest dynamic range. In other words, the least amount of compression and limiting. And everybody thinks those sound better than anything else. So why have we fallen into the trap of always using lots of compression? Well, a lot of it has to do with what is the latest trend and what we're used to hearing. Many people think that the overcompression that we're used to now started back with Metallica's Death Magnetic album. And to some degree, that's true. That was so overcompressed it was hard to listen to, but it started everybody else down that path. The thing is, it only takes one hit to change things. And here's hoping that the latest Red Hot Chili Peppers album is going to do just that. (laughs) 
My guest this week is Ron Jones, who's had a long career writing some of the biggest hit television shows of our time. Ron has worked on a variety of popular primetime shows like The A-Team, Magnum P.I., Hardcastle McCormick, Hunter, and Star Trek Next Generation, but he may be better known for his work in animated shows. These include The Smurfs, Scooby-Doo, Disney's DuckTales, Fairly Odd Parents, and the ever-popular Family Guy and American Dad. During the interview, we talked about why working on animation can be liberating for a composer, why the days before MIDI was actually easier for composers, his battle with categorizing his music on CD Baby, and much more. As you'll hear, Ron's a really funny guy with a wealth of knowledge, so we'll probably come back for a part two of the conversation soon. I spoke with Ron via Zoom from a studio in Washington State. One of the things I always admired about your music is it swings. And that's something that, you know, have that often, especially in, in these days of uh, drum loops and machines doing everything. Your stuff swings. I love it. Well, there's humans, you know, like I guess the, the motto is it doesn't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. You know, uh, it's it's um, I think I think feel is a big, important thing, like in film, film music. The whole goal for a composer is to capture the emotions because music is a purely emotional abstract. So you're trying to tap into this electrical chemical thing in us called emotions and rhythm and feel are perceived because even the two-year-old catches all the little nuances. You know, they're all like little crazy producers in a way, you know, you ask a two-year-old, what did you like about the drum fill? And they go, well, you know, <laughs> the guy slowed down a little bit, you know, and <laughs> he's kind of got, got out of feel, you know, like the, 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 all of them are like little, little uh, maniacs as far as not, because humans uh, are built to create meaning out of all of these elements that we call music. And so uh, I've always felt like, when, when I write a show, I sit back myself and I, I don't want anybody to watch, which, you know, when it's on the air, like I've already seen a melt but I have a glass of Sauvignon Blanc and I've got like a recliner and I've got the surround system perfectly aligned and I listen and I go, I want to be, enjoy this. I want to feel moved. I want to feel that. And so I ask myself, as the ultimate receptor of that, whether I accomplish that or not. So that's always my goal. I want to go back to the beginning because your bio talks about when you first got to Los Angeles, but tell me about before then. Well, it's funny, like my my mom would drag me and my brother to art museums and to all kinds of things to sort of like expose us to the larger world. You know, she wasn't from an upper class family at all or anything. And she just said, okay, I'm dragging you guys to this and that. And she, you know, I said, when I was in grade school, like fifth grade, I said, uh, hey mom, I, I think I'd like to do a uh, music class. They said we could sign up. And she goes, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, well, how about drums? She says, okay, but you're going to have to take some lessons. So I, you know, they, my parents buy a snare at the local little music store in Bellevue in Eastgate. 
and um, brought it home. And of course, I wanted to take it apart. So I basically dissembled it, you know, <laughs> and uh, and then the teacher yelled at us, the kids, you know, you're never going to be good enough. You're horrible. Go away, you know, but come here. Let me punish you. So it's like I go, well, I guess that's not good. So if Christmas comes and my, and my folks say, what do you want? I say, I'd like an organ. And they mean, you know, like a liver. No, I mean, I mean, you know, you play it. So they get like a cheap, you know, made in Korea, you know, whatever kind of thing that's has like two octaves. And I go, huh, I wonder how the reeds work. So I took it apart. <laughs> and again, it does, you know, I go, oh, so the wind blows through the thing. And that didn't work. So it, that, that was my early thing was taking it apart to see how it works. But I really gained my greatest exposure through drum and bugle corps which is like, you know, Santa Clara Vanguard and all that kind of stuff. My, my mom said, oh, I'll sign you guys up for a drum corps. And we go, what's that? And so me and my brother were 11. I was 11. He was 10. So we were too young, but they let us come in. And it's not like a high school band where they, you know, you show up and it's like a class on how to be mediocre and they perfect mediocre, mediocrity and they don't require you to practice. Just sit there in the chair and blow your clarinet. So... Drum corps, like there's nowhere to hide. It's like going to Marine boot camp for years as a kid. And you're out there, you know, and practicing until your lips bleed. In fact, if you didn't bleed, you weren't considered cool. So I'd have blood. I could show my mouthpiece. I say, see, see the blood. (laughs) So that, that sort of started my, my whole thing. And I said, you know, the extremists, the extremists are the ones that get things done. You know, I realized that those were the guys they had two valves and they were doing the right of spring. Try that one, baby. Yeah, right. Try doing the marching to the right of spring with two valves. You can't even get the third valve to get A flat, you know? Yeah. Like, how did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> so that's not too many people answer that. No one, everyone else likes to say, yeah, I studied with Dizzy Gillespie, you know, for years. And, you know, that's, <laughs> I became great. So, so you, you started in Washington then. Well, from the Midwest originally. Oh, okay. And then my folks moved west, you know, like everyone says, go west. And um, so we were in uh, Bellevue most of the time, and then Oregon um, after that. So I was kind of a product of that, but I really appreciate the community college I went to. When I got to the new high school, we moved in my, started my junior year to Oregon, to a little town outside of Portland, like in the boonies. And uh, the, there was a class called Special Projects, and you, some people would do macrame, and some people would do read books. Or, you know, it was like unsupervised. You could do whatever you want. And they asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I want to go to college and take music theory. And they go, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I want to go to college. So they said they gave me permission slip to go off the campus. And they said, if you, if you buy your books, we'll pay the tuition. So I went there and I started taking college music theory. And um, that's that was kind of like bolted me into reality. And I failed because I was a junior in high school. What was I doing in college, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I took the time and I didn't tell the school. So I'd go in the practice room, in the band room when it was dark, and I'd take my music theory book and I would go through and did all this, the whole book on my own. Then I went back my senior year and aced everything. From then on, I didn't even have to do the assignments. I, I was like the, the savant of the, of the class. And I would just come in and do the final. 
and I would just write for the choir, write for the jazz band, write for the every group. I was just like, you know, Haydn at Esterhazy. So that's that was my again another weird. People at home should not copy this. You know, this is like one of those don't try this at home. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't run with knives. <laughs> when did you get the idea that you really wanted to be scoring film and television? Well, my wife, who who grew up with her, both parents were music teachers. She saw something in me that I didn't see at the time. You know, I was writing like drum corps shows and, you know, jazz groups and, you know, whatever group that would was around, choirs. And I was a big fan of Don Ellis at the time with the, you know, 1908, you know, Bulgarian rhythms and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, he did a, sh a show called... Um, um, was it called uh something paris i don't remember but it was like a cop show and um a french connection oh. and i go oh you mean he can do that crazy jazz stuff and you can do film and then just as i was getting ready to graduate from college my wife who's more into science fiction books goes you know there's this movie came out and it's called star wars and i go no i don't that sounds dumb why would the star what kind of stars so she drags me down to the, like, you know, the premiere and there's like lines of people at the Cinerama Dome in Seattle. And I go, this is really dumb. This is dumb. And I'm sitting there with my popcorn and it did the opening scene on Tatooine. Yeah. And I went, um, honey, <laughs> let's go to LA right now. <laughs> you mean like, she goes like, you mean today? I go, yeah, let's go. So the minute I got out of college, we we loaded up a van and headed to San Fernando Valley, and I signed up for Dick Groves. Okay. So it I was want... Star Wars. Yeah, go ahead. I'm no. sorry. No, it was Star Wars. I want to talk to you about Dick Grove. And the reason why is I always felt bad that I didn't go there, to be honest with you, because I was quite aware of the reputation and everybody I knew that came out of Dick Grove became an outstanding musician. Yeah. So you were already very advanced in what you knew. What did you learn from Dick Grove that you couldn't have gotten anywhere else? Well, the thing is, before, they must have told me some good stuff because before I graduated, I was doing network television and I had done part of a movie of the week for NBC. And I basically was working. I was sort of like going, oh, I got to get out of the school. Okay, you know, I'll finish, you know, assignments. I think the first thing is that you have to take seriously, like when you're in college, the teachers all studied books. They didn't study with Stravinsky. They didn't study with the real guy. They just studied with other people that studied books that studied books. It's called academia, arts and letters. So I said, well, I want to go to Dick Grove. I started a music publishing company when I was in college still. I got a student loan, bought a Fender Rhodes electric piano and, a, and, and money to publish some music I'd written to sell at jazz educators, things out of the trunk of my car. And um, so I said to my wife, I said, you know, okay, look, I'm going to push my publishing company, keep writing and all that, but I want to go down to Hollywood just to see, you know, study with the best guys doing records, the best guys doing, because back then there was the record industry, jingles, 
you know, film, TV, everything. Yeah, it was like radio. So I went down and I said, I want to study with the real cats. So I told myself before I got there, I said, I'm going to take everything they say serious. If they tell me to strip and jump off a building into the street, I'll do it. I didn't, I did not argue. I didn't go, you know, I don't know if counterpoint is really for me. <laughs> you know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't like think of it as a salad bar, you know, like, oh, I think I'll have some oranges, but I'm new, no, not going to have croutons. So I just said, I'm going to have the whole salad bar. So if he gave me an assignment, I did three. And we were starving. Sometimes we only had money for bread and we get bread and Betty Crocker frosting and sit on the street at Laurel Canyon and have some frosting before we died. <laughs> and, you know, I said, I said, I'm going to take these guys seriously. I'm going to take them at their word. So we had Larry Mahobrak, we had Jack Smalley, we had Dick Rove, we had, I mean, he assembled this ragtag, you know, pirate uh, college that you dream of that, that doesn't exist now. All the colleges are sort of how to be conformist and how to fail is their motto. So they don't, you have to succeed in spite of them. But with these guys, all you had to do was listen and do the assignments. So I copied, you know, to survive, you know, I copied at a copy office. And so I copy all my music in ink and I had my music on the stand on Fridays to be recorded. And Dick would always say, okay, is everyone ready? Oh, it looks like Ron's ready. <laughs> you know, like I felt yeah. like Hermione Granger, you know, like, yes, I know the answer to the potion, <laughs> you know, like, shut up. We don't want to hear from you, Hermione. You know, like you're, yeah. you're being a smart ass, you know. So I just took it seriously. That's all. I think if, if, if a person just took their piano lessons seriously or your books seriously or any training from somebody that knows it's going to have more weight and more effect on you than if you go, Oh, you know, I got, I'm eating a bologna sandwich. I don't care. You know, Oh, I'll just buy my way in. You yeah, know, I'll just, yeah. my credit card, my folks have a credit card line of credit. I'll just buy equipment and that'll be my, my certification. So, you can't skip the hard stuff. I, I I sound like Abraham Lincoln or something, you know, like you got to cut the logs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You can't build a cabin without the logs. Well, <laughs> you, you started very early scoring for animation with Hanna-Barbera, right? Mm hmm And that's been kind of recurring theme for you during your career. Well, the thing is with animation is, you know, like with a regular film, like say they want to go out in the desert, they have to pay the crew to travel. They have to get union clearances and insurance and stuff to go out and film in the desert. So most of the stories for conventional television is like they're in a house yeah, and somebody has a problem, you know, like, okay, so it's not very interesting, but with animation, the animators could say they're on the moon. They're over here. They're down in the sewer. There's rats coming. There's giant monkeys. You know, like they can do anything. And I found that to be demanding. And then what I tried to do is do it as if Jerry Goldsmith was called to do the assignment mm. or Carl Stalling or whatever. I, I tried to pretend always I was John Williams or somebody. I said, what would they do? 
how not copying them but saying what would they do how would they treat this so so what i brought and also i brought a respect for the audience that i think a lot of people don't bring to animation i think they go in and go you know the audience doesn't give a crap you know they don't have credit cards who cares you know like they have no finite they have no portfolios so why do i care you know and it's not real so they they still treat it uh, most people in music treat animation like it's kitty music. I never wrote cute music in my life. I never wrote ha-ha music ever. For for Family Guy, I, said, I always had to be the straight man because they had 20 writers that wrote jokes. You know, and yeah. each joke cost $50,000 to write. So what am I going to do? You know, I, I have to be the straight man. So I felt like an, an Elvis, and, I mean, uh, Abbott and Costello... I was, I was Abbott, you know, I mean, I, I don't know which role I got to be, but I'm a funny guy, but I never got to be funny with the music. So it was, so doing animation, first of all, there's endless work. It's like a black hole of energy, you know, it's like unlimited energy. Whereas if you say, all I do is dramas, like add up how many productions are dramas or how many are, you know, that I, I only do Westerns. Well, wait a long time, Skippy, because we're not making many of those. So, you know, you you better try some other. So it was just thinking like Elmer Fudd, like it's wabbit season. Where's the wabbits? You don't go. It's if you don't know it's wabbit season, you won't load your gun. You won't be ready for the wabbits. So it's an Elmer Fudd thing, you know, to to go, hey, this is where the work, this is where the opportunity is, you know. I was looking at your bio and surprised to find, and I should have known this, but it didn't, that you scored Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. Well, I did four seasons of it until they they had me decapitated. (laughs) Um, uh, And I don't, and and it was a very cool uh, experience to work on that because this was before you did MIDI mock-ups. Like right now, a composer has to compose it many times and then they, they send you notes every day and say, I don't really like eighth notes. Please remove all the eighth notes. And your whole piece was eighth note. Yeah. You know, like they can second guess you and third guess you and drive you nuts right through the whole process. But back then you'd go into a room with the producer and spot it. And they'd say, good luck. It was like, you know, Mission Impossible. If you fail, they just kill you. So, you know, and then we'd, you would write it, you would do the show. And if they need to change it, they'd have to call a session. So the accountants didn't allow that to happen. They just go, hey, get the guys you trust. Like here's Billy Byers or here's, you know, these composers, uh, you know, like get the people that know what they're doing and you'll sleep well. You'll, you'll be, there'll be no problem. So I was always in that camp where I could deliver no matter what the deadline was, I often, I had a, you know how at Disneyland you get an e-ticket to go on rides? Yeah. I had a pass to go to the emergency room at St. Joe's because there was a whole wing of composers and bass players, <laughs> you know, and we'd actually say, let's start a band in here. You know, it's like so many people were there with IVs and I, and they, you go to the front desk when they, you come in all working for 72 hours straight without sleep and drinking nine cups of coffee a day. And the, the lady at the triage says, what's wrong with you, sir? And you say, oh, I'm a composer. Oh, 
You got to go to Ward Five. Ward, ward Five. We got we had a whole area back there. <laughs> tubes, tubes are coming out, you know. And there's James Horner, and there's all the guys. You know, all the guys are there, and we all talk about, you know, oh, really? You're working for that guy? Oh no, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no eighth notes. Oh, they give you that one too. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> How did Family Guy come about? Uh. It's funny, um, Hanna-Barbera started a program called What a Cartoon, where they thought, you know, we need to get some young blood in here. So they would go raid, like uh, Seth was at uh, Providence, you know, school of, you know, university, which is a very creative place. And he was in, into animation and into his creative stuff. And they brought all these young kids together and said, you can do these little shows called What a, what a Cartoon. And they were like little seven minute shows. And so Seth had grew, grown up watching Star Trek Next Generation, watching DuckTales, watching all these shows I did. And so he went into Bodie Chandler's office, the music director at Hanna-Barbera, when it was time to score his first show. And uh, Bodie said, here's a list, here's, it's all typed out, there's one page, and you can pick any of those composers, we don't care. Well, Seth's a soundtrack geek, so he's looking at this list. And he goes down the list. He says, Ron Jones, I can call Ron Jones. So Bodie calls me and says, uh, hey, Ron, how's it going? I go, fine. How's your yacht? Yeah, it's fine. And then he goes, I got this uh, young producer here named Seth. Um, he wonders if he could come over and, and talk to you about a project. I said, well, okay. You know, 4 o'clock this afternoon, come to my studio. So he comes in. And he's like, you know, got pimples and zits. Of course, now he's like, you know, a star. And he had, you know, zits and he just had eaten a hamburger at McDonald's. And he goes over to the piano. He starts playing my DuckTales cues by ear. Wow. And I go, this kid is scary. You know, wow, how did he learn that? I've heard of people doing that. It's almost like Charles Manson kind of mindset that they get to study that. So uh, anyway, so I scored a couple of his shows and just hit it off creatively just you know wow and then the next thing i know he says i got a show uh coming up uh pilot for a thing called family guy and i said uh oh that's great when does it go he says well you know i'm i'm doing it on my kitchen table i said what do you mean you're doing it? he says i'm drawing it they just gave me enough money to draw it out and and do like 15 minutes or whatever it was I said, okay, well, call me when you're ready. And I'm thinking like it's a week or something. So six months later, he calls me. He says, hey, Ron, how's it going? I go, oh, hey, uh, Seth, what's up? He says, oh, I'm ready to go. I said, ready to go with what? He says, I got the show. I said, well, good. Do you want me to score it? He says, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, well, when does it go? He says, oh, tomorrow at 10. Oh. <laughs> he said, and this was like three in the afternoon. And yeah. I go, what? You, what? I said, what? I said, did I hear that wrong? You said tomorrow at 10. She said, yeah. I said, well, you better get over here with that thing. So I, I, I look at it. I spot it. He doesn't know what to tell me, what to do. And I, I score it, compose it, you know, by hand, sat there and input it, which I don't do. I input it in MIDI, made it, print it, you know, uh, mix it, put it together. And I was in Santa Monica from Burbank in the traffic at 9 o'clock with a DAT, 
with the slates, with the cue sheets, with the time code, mixed, done. Seth comes in at 1030. And I said, look, a blankie, you know, well, if you can fill in the name. You told me to write the score. I had to write the themes, write the thing, get the thing, score it, did it, with no time. And you said 10 o'clock, and I'm here at 9 o'clock, and you're late. Are you a ding-dong? You know, like, I mean, I had, I really had showed no mercy to Seth. And I don't know why we were friends for all the time we've been. I mean, we've worked together for like 20 years, so, you know, uh, but... Uh, you know, that's how it, it, the unglorious truth of the whole thing was that I could crank and then it became a big hit, you know, and then like a year later, they got a production office with 900 people and they're cranking out stuff. But that's how it started. He drew it on his kitchen table. So you mean the theme song you did basically overnight with everything else? I did too. I did too. And then they po- chose uh, Walter Murphy's when it came down to choosing the, sh- the theme they wanted because they brought in a Fox said, hey, Seth's a new producer and we're going to team him with a guy that has a little bit more uh, chops to give to, to ensure our investment. Because they didn't know how far he was going to be out or, you know, and let him be creative, let the other guy yell at people. So the other guy brought in Walter, Walter Murphy, and Walter and I shared the show. He would do an episode. I would do an episode. And he, Walter's still doing it now. Um, and we were friends. We, we both came up through uh, working with Mike Post and Pete Carpenter doing A-Team, Hardcastle, McCormick, Riptide, you know, all those yeah. shows. So we were friends. And and uh, so I go, oh, great. You picked a good guy. I'm glad. But I had no, no knowledge. I had submitted two maybe more uh main title i mean you know with i hired singers and, and they're really good i personally i know i'm biased but i thought they were better wow <laughs> we'll never know now but you know i yeah. thought i thought i really nailed it and it wasn't so two five one it wasn't so predictable you know you know like yeah. you know mcdonald had a farm whoever did all mcdonald had a farm is brilliant but you know, it's sort of like I want to. I want to put a little bit more into it. That's fascinating. Wow, who would know the the backstory on that? Only the CIA, yeah, and the KGB. They, those are the only ones that know the horrible truth of it. <laughs> I know that you had the uh, influence jazz orchestra for a long time, but uh, does that exist now? Well, we had this little thing called a pandemic, and. I started up here with the idea of building it into a national group that would tour. And there were so many obstacles. Like, first of all, most of the jazz venues, with the exception of maybe one in Seattle called Jazz Alley, which only does touring groups. Like people, you have to be from L.A. to perform in Seattle. Very few local groups get get to do it. It's like, you know, Dave Grusin will come through or, you know, whatever. And... So all the other venues were run by people like uh, in their spare time, hey, we like to have a little jazz on Friday night. You know, so you go there and they're, I, my band, I had five in the audio crew. We had to rent U-Haul trucks. We had $100,000 of gear. We had video. We showed video. Wow. I had video guys. We had 
it was basically like like uh you know on tour with beyonce and i'm getting paid only enough to pay for the rental of the first truck and i said okay i'll put up with this for a while you know and and then players because at the end of the day i'm paying for everything i'm paying for you know this that that and then when i get the paycheck from the it barely covers anything so i'm i'm floating this thinking it's an investment to get further and then finally the players are going hey we want more money mm. or we're not going to show up and they would take wedding gigs like in seattle it's not the symphony it's not the records it's the wedding gigs because a guitar player can make 800 bucks get drunk and eat cake and all the other gigs pay like nothing around here you know it's like a non-union you know free-for-all uh aborigine circus okay so after a while and i rented big big auditoriums i would fill them and i could fill it i mean i would take out the ads did all the work did all the thing drag the band there do all the stuff and i lost my shirt every time finally i did one last one and i still had two more gigs coming up i said okay i'm gonna do those and the players took wedding gigs. the key players took wedding gigs like no time to call anybody else because mm. in la you've got 15 people you can call that could do alto sax that are great that are like world class and could sight read but here it's a little bit skimpier on the list so i call the second guy he's also doing the wedding or he's doing a thing a clown he's going to be a clown somewhere so i call finally i'm bringing in players from portland vancouver and la so i'm spending something like 10 grand for players to do the local gig that pays 1200 dollars. yeah yeah so I said, you know, as much as I like to be a masochist professionally and beat myself up, I said, there's really more productive things. And, and also up here, like all concerts are sort of considered religious events. They're like, you're in the audience and we all sit and we all applaud and we, you know, it's like very formal uh thing and i would get up there and use cuss words and stuff like that because i'm used to being lenny bruce in jazz clubs in la yeah right i go wasn't that a great blank you know thing yeah. and everybody's like oh <laughs> i didn't know i just he just did he just say that word <laughs> we haven't heard that for a long time so i kept getting these like you know moral thing over here and all that i said i said you know jazz is a four-letter word it was a word that was made up by the aristocracy to make fun of black people, to make fun of the people doing the non-legit music. Why do you want me to be legit? Why do you want me? This is not the, the, the London Philharmonic. I conducted the London Philharmonic at Royal Albert Hall. I know what it's like. You wear a tuxedo, you do this, you know, everyone's precise. It's cool, but that's not jazz. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, like, it's like, okay, here's a jazz concert in, up here in the Northwest. Would everyone please get out their hymnal and we're going to go to uh, uh, please love eight notes on page 59. Please, with the organist, please play. Everyone go along, you know, and yes, yes. It's, it's, it's like, and they're all playing things that are, have been done. Nobody's being adventurous. The only ones being adventurous are the ones that are purely wrong. Like they don't know what right is so they can't help but be creative because they've never they don't they're not informed as to what john coltrane did or what all these guys did so 
I just go, man, you know, you can, you can sacrifice me on the stone of trying. My blood is all over from that. But I'm not going to, I have to elect to save my soul and keep a joy about my music. And that was making me, I was blowing some schmeckles. I don't know anybody. Do you know anybody that's willing to blow more than a million dollars on a, on the idea of getting music going in an area that doesn't want it? Like, that's just silly. You know, it's like opening a French restaurant in Pacoima. It's not going to work. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Open a food truck. <laughs> Let's switch gears, Ron, and talk about your battle with CD Baby. Yeah, it's... I. I think we're going to see more of a invisible wall to artists. And I never thought that I would be drug into a, 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 a situation where I'd have to complain and, and, and be a voice of dissent against it. But, you know, these, the, the, you know, Apple started Apple music and Apple goes, Hey, we're the big guys. And, all music that exists, if you want to sell it now, you know, like CDs die, they're sort of making a creep back. Records die, they're sort of making a creep back. But digital has continued to grow and grow and grow. So we know if you're an artist, you need to be able to put your, your art in the gallery. So, so now when they first started, you could go in, there was all kinds of categories. Practically, you could pick any category. You say, I'm doing gamelan music from Czechoslovakia, and that would be a category. Oddly, if you go there now, even though there, much of that music up there is exists and you can search it, if you are not in the 20 styles, which is spoken word, children's music, gospel, urban, jazz, maybe contemporary jazz, avant-garde, classical, you know, whatever the 20 is, I could recite it. I studied it quite a bit. So then when you go through a place like CD Baby, which is the gateway, you can't just go to Apple. You can't call up Cupertino, said, hey, I got an album. You want to put it on? They go, yeah, let me get you to Ginny in the upstairs. You know, there's no such thing. So you go through these services that have become run by artificial intelligence. There used to be guys, hippie guys, there or at Starbucks or somewhere, wherever you reach them for CD babies in Portland, that would answer the phone and say, oh, yeah, I like your bingo, your bongo thing and let's go get it up there. And yeah, you're in folk, dude, you know, like they would be cool. Now it's like you got a question and you get a robot. Hmm. And that's the same for DistroKid. That's the same for TuneCore. That's the same for all of them. So... You, then you go down, and, and here I've been writing my bucket list of big symphonic. I've written part of an opera. I've written all these different things. So I'm putting these things together, and then they go. I go to the part where you, there's a category, and there's no category. So I said, well, okay. I said, most audience would think music that you'd play in a concert now would be classical, right? Even though it's not Mozart, it's not Haydn, it's not harpsichords, it's now music. 2021, 22. 
and it's not classical. It's more neoclassical. It's more beyond that. So there's no category. So I go, okay. So I start looking around. Finally, I found a place painfully. I went through Naxos. I went through through a thing called Idagio in, in Germany. Finally, I found a place in Zurich called iMusician. And you go to submit your thing, and there's three categories. Classical, contemporary classical, and I think the third one is opera. No urban, no hip-hop, no that. Just that. And they were the only ones I found. And they're actually humans that answer. They do have like their automated, just basic answers and stuff, of course. But there's like, you know, a room full of people that actually care. And the guy that runs Idagio, which is the biggest private service, streaming service for classical in the world, he said, those are the cats you go to. Hmm. He recommended it. So... Meanwhile, I keep getting nasty emails from robots. I, t I told CD Baby to cease and desist. I said, I'm going to get an attorney. So I've called three attorneys. And I said, look, here's this problem. That they, they, they're basically saying you don't exist. So, okay, so, so basically now it's a market thing done like, like Google and stuff like this. They, they look at the market and they say, you know what's selling is rubber boots. So let's pump rubber boots. So they're doing the same thing with music. They're saying, well, they can monitor with analytics that 11-year-old girls like Billie Eilish. And they buy more CDs and um, lip gloss. And uh, eventually they're going to have uh, Ford Mustangs. So let's keep that category. But, you know, this serious music, nobody gives a blank about it. It's not really demographic. The 11-year-old girls don't like it. So let's just eliminate the confusion in the marketplace. So eventually there'll be one style, and that's whatever sells. You know, so I'm I'm always the canary that's, that's in the coal mine saying, hey, guess what, guys? There's some gas coming up. You know, I'm trying to tell everybody, and they're all busy in the mine. So I'm sure that, what I'm talking about won't become like George Orwell's uh, 1984 right away, but we're on our way. We're, we're, we're on our way to a totally closed loop for music. Now that doesn't mean you can't go to the bar and play your guitar. That's fine. But your access to the larger audience to where the work would be is not going to be there. But Ron, isn't that going to change now since Apple bought Prime? Um... No, they but... bought the library so they could say, we have all a Deutsch gramophone, we have all that stuff. They basically bought the library. They don't know what to do with it. No, no, I just, saw exactly. the, <clears throat> I just saw yesterday, in fact, they're coming out with a new service, a classically oriented service. Right, but, but they, they, what they're doing, they want, them, they want you to listen to Tallyman, harpsichord sonatas, that were recorded already. Yeah. They're, the new music doesn't appeal to them at all. There's no category. So, and you can't reach Apple. You can't say, you know, hey, I'm a, uh, doing serious music. How, what's the gateway? They don't answer. They don't allow you in. They don't, like, there's a wall that's impenetrable. So, 
if if Strauss was born today or Mozart was born today or Beethoven was born today, they would have to go into being a shoeshine person. So what are we losing? What are we giving up? Eventually, it's going to be books. They're going to say, you know what? The only books that matter are the ones that sell this much or the only podcasts that matter are the ones that get the highest ratings. Like you're able to say with your voice, put a camera up there and point it and you're able to to express freely yeah. to the world. And you'll get a lot of followers, this and that, but you get to say it. Imagine that they're going to say, you know what? You don't have 1 million views this week. Goodbye. Yeah. So the, the, the whole thing that made America, America was ideas. Check in with Benjamin Franklin. Check in with those guys. They wanted this to be a free and open thing. The King of England controlled all the publishing in England, and it was all within a space, and he got a percentage. When the rebels out here in America said, no, we'd like to make books too, he said, no, no, you don't get to do that. And they said, yes, we do. There were more readers, more books were sold in America in the first century than the rest of the world combined. Hmm. We were a nation of ideas. Everybody read the latest novels. Everybody read the newspapers. It may be a year old newspaper from St. Louis, but everyone read and was literate. And look where we've got, where we're at now. You know, it's, it's Twitters and, and stuff like that. So I know I sound grapey and I like the old grumpy guy, um, a caricature of something, but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, we, we who came first tried to hold the flame and said, this is what's important, your creativity, your freedom, and your opportunity to create or to be a failure. You mean like you're not even going to be allowed to be a failure because unless you're already like a boy group, boy band from Korea that's by, by design, they audition hundreds of people and then they pick people that look a certain way and they can act a certain way. And they say, yeah, yeah, no, we'll fix it. And then they have all the voices recorded in L.A., and then they just dub these people uh, dancing yeah, okay. around and stuff like that. It's all like session players from Sweden and LA. And it's, they say, yeah, look what we did in, in Korea. Oh man, it's really cool because there it's a product. So art, I mean, you know, like Picasso knew when he made something, you know, he, he was, he knew he was smart commercially. He would do things that would kind of get the elite to pay for these things, you know? He got his paintings up to be a million before he died. Okay, so he understood the market, but he didn't suck to the market. Yeah, he didn't yeah. think of demographics. I mean, like any of the great music people that we look up to, Jimi Hendrix would have a fit, you know? How, how could you do all along the Watchtower? How could you do what he did yeah. in that like Star Spangled Banner? They would say, oh, how dare you use electric guitar like that? I mean, we're in a prudish, judgmental, closed mind, uninformed, unempirical, nauseating, confused state, dead end. And I'm just saying, I've reached that end. And I'm telling you guys that are coming along, watch out, watch out. The tanks are on the other side waiting to come in. You know, like, it's like Ukraine. You know, they all say, ah, it's not going to happen. Mm, Those yeah. guys aren't going to, they're just yeah. massing out there. They're having fun. Well, the thing is, if if they don't, 
then George R. Well, they might as well start reading that so they understand how it works. Yeah, <laughs> right, you right. Know, like 1984, just skip to the last chapter. That's where, you know, don't read the first part. You can find out more about Ron at ronjonesproductions.com. That's Ron Jones, J-O-N-E-S, productions, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.